Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the Blessed Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One Sadanto Suchedo ye Lahadi Sanmeao Sanputoshe Namo Sadanto Suchedo ye Lahadi Sanmeao Sanputoshe Ushang Shen Shen Vena Hara Bai Chen Wang Jie Nan Zhao Wo Jin Chen Wang De Shou Chi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture. This is September 15th, Saturday evening here in Berkeley, California. We're looking into the Flower Garland Sutra, the Flower Dharma Sutra, the Ten Grounds chapter, and we're on the third ground. Let's begin tonight by invoking the, the Sutra by name, and then the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly. And you'll find that on the front cover of the text, and we'll uh, go from there. Oh, oh, oh. 
Please turn in your text to page 66 and 67. We're down at the very bottom. Last two lines. neither greedy nor attached, he seeks the Buddha's wisdom with no other thought. Hard to fathom, hard to think of, and incomparable. Limitless and boundless, by troubles not oppressed. We're in the third ground. The Bodhisattva is looking through the surface of things. He has been meditating a lot. This bodhisattva's meditation is starting to work. And as a result, things don't look the way they used to. When this bodhisattva looks at things that used to either attract him or repel him, um, now he looks right past the shiny surface and goes into the heart of things and is looking deeper. He looks deeper. He's got x-ray vision now. And as he looks at things in the world, they their, their nature is revealed. And what is their nature? Well, that was what we discovered a couple of weeks ago, that the Buddha's description of the nature of things is that they don't last very long. They keep falling apart. They last, but not in the shape and the structure and the components that we know them as. They keep breaking up and becoming other stuff. So that's what he sees now. And when you see things break up, they don't attract you in the same old way. They don't scare you in the same old way either. That's the benefit of wisdom, as you can see through the surface to what things are, where they came from, and where they're going. So he sees that they're, they don't last long. They move on. Things are impermanent. They're transient. They're moving on. Things move on. Two, he sees that things don't hit the spot the way they used to. 
In other words, they are unsatisfying. Things that used to... On one hand, it's kind of... Ignorance is nice. If you, if you don't mind waking up. But if, if you're ignorant and you're content with being ignorant, then just go for the same old stuff and let it be unsatisfying. Because that's the way stuff is. We just kind of get used to it and we go along with the flow. We just, you know, whatever. Let it happen. Let it come. And everywhere you look, people are doing the same thing. Everybody's kind of letting it go. So if you're content there, fine. Just turn over, go back to sleep. But the Bodhisattva woke up and he can't just go back to sleep anymore. She can't be content with just the same old. So that's different now. And he sees the nature of things that they don't hit the spot. They're not satisfying. The word in Sanskrit is dukkha. The word in Chinese is ko. But ko is not the same as kotong. It's not the same as pain, although it can be. So to say that the Buddha's, Buddhists are always seeing suffering is a mistranslation of the word dukkha. It's just that the Buddha sees that things don't satisfy the way they used to. They don't hit that spot. Nothing that the Bodhisattva has, since he woke up this way or since she woke up, nothing has hit the spot. But interesting, the Bodhisattva doesn't blame the thing. It's not the fault of the stuff. It's he, she is able to see, you know, it's that there's something inside me that turns everything that my senses see, hear, taste, touch, smell, or conceptualize, nothing lasts. As a result, it can't hit the spot. Further, the Bodhisattva carries it one step deeper and says, not only that, the senses that I'm looking at stuff with don't hit the spot, because why? They're always changing too. Perception is really fluid. Dogs hear better than humans do. Bats hear better than dogs do. Sonar, a machine, can hear better than bats. So what is, what is it with hearing? Why am I looking at hearing as the place where I'm going to get the last note, the perfect note, the most beautiful symphony? Mm-mm, doesn't exist, because the thing I'm hearing it with is inherently moving on. So the Bodhisattva, having that wisdom is a, is a drag, right? Because nothing, the same old stuff that used to hit the spot, now you look at it and you realize, no, it's just temporary, it's moving on, it's made up of other stuff. How could I have thought that was it? So once innocence dies, you've got to keep moving or else you're going to be pretty cynical or pretty bitter. The Bodhisattva is neither because he's woke up through the dissolution of stuff. But that's, that's further down the road as we go. So, three things. Transient, not permanent. Suffering, that is to say, unsatisfying. And then, very interesting, he sees that nothing, nothing, nothing in the world has any inherent identity to it. That it's completely that thing and nothing else, and will always be that thing. He sees that the, the word we translate it is no self. 
There is no self in dharmas. Which means what? It means that nothing that the Bodhisattva sees now with his new eyes or her new eyes is intrinsically always that way. And what's the effect of seeing it that way? You can let it go. You don't cling. You don't grab on to something that is always becoming something else. Because it is empty until karma brings it into being and then it's gone and empty again and then karma brings it into being and then it's gone again. So the Bodhisattva's new vision into the nature of all, quote, conditioned things, all component dharmas, this x-ray vision is quite a trip <laughs> because you're all, things are always exploding on you. Things are always vanishing right in front of your eyes. But there's a result of seeing it that way, which is you don't attach to them and you're not afraid of them the way you used to be. And you can use them skillfully to wake other people up. And this vision is opens a whole new road to liberation from greed, craving. Why do you crave stuff that when you get it, it's always going, it's always moving on. And you see further that the thing that's craving it is moving on. So where does that leave you? Well, it could leave you totally freaked out at the emptiness at the heart of all things. But the Bodhisattva takes it one step further and says, I know that's true, but living beings don't. And so I have to wake them up. Because then they have a chance to get free. So compassion kicks in immediately after you empty out all conditioned things, all dharmas. So right underneath this total emptiness is the Bodhisattva's great bottomless, endless reservoir of compassion for beings who are still grabbing after that form, that sound, that taste, that sight, as being the one that if I don't get it, my life comes to an end and I'm frustrated. He wants to wake beings up who are there. So here, here we go. What does it say? Dismayed, not disgusted with. That's a bad translation. Dismayed by the three existences, neither greedy nor attached to them, she intently seeks the Buddha's wisdom with no other thought. She seeks the Buddha's wisdom with no other thought. How it is hard to fathom, hard to even contemplate, and nothing compares. It is boundless. It has no limits. By troubles, the Dharma is not oppressed. Okay? So... This verse is the Bodhisattva's new vision. He's, she's been coming along a long time. It's a long road to get to the third ground. And at this point, the Bodhisattva goes, I've never seen anything like the Buddha Dharma for telling the truth about how the stuff is. This, is. this is the truth of how stuff is. Because why? He has been experiencing it this way all along, but probably thought he was crazy to see it that way. How long did the Bodhisattva go thinking that he was the only one who was watching stuff explode? He was the only one who was watching... The, everybody told him it was the good stuff, and when he got it, it didn't hit the spot. And he thought he was crazy because all the advertising told him, this is it, this is it. And when he got it, it wasn't it. And he had nobody to share, nobody to 
is, is that really it? No, man, it's not. It's a shuck. It's, it's jive. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I was worried. I thought I was the only one. Because every time I got it, it just went poof, nothing. And so when the Bodhisattva found the Dharma, it's like, oh, God, the Buddha saw it the way it is. Thank goodness for the Dharma, which finally explains it the way I've been experiencing it only partially and from time to time. Here's the deep vision. This is a consistent top-to-bottom, bottom-to-top analysis of how things really are. And it's not mediated by consciousness. The conscious mind is not there limiting what I'm seeing. It goes deeper than consciousness. It goes down to wisdom. This finally is an ultimate analysis, scientific, provable, with a paper trail, subjects contested. It's double-blind, provable. This is the final description of how things are. Thank you, Buddha. This is incomparably wonderful because it goes to the heart of all things, conditioned things. And it lays them out and it says, don't stop there either because why? Karma keeps bringing it back into form. But if you can see through it, you're like a magician who is able to conjure and yet can make the apparition, the illusion, go away at the same time. So, how powerful is that? So, the three existences, desire, form, and formlessness, sometimes named as the 25 existences, it's just a description of where beings come back. In these realms, in these three realms, the Bodhisattva can come and can go. He can be a dung beetle. He can be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He can be a god. He can be a ghost. And he's not attached to any of those. But in any situation, he can appear to teach and to help. So he says, I need more Dharma, wisdom. That's what I want. Please teach me the Dharma so I can find new ways to explain it that people will get. And he realizes that this Dharma is profound. It goes beyond conscious thought. You can't compare it to anything else. It doesn't stop. Because why? It's describing a living system. The Dharma's description is as fresh and as uh, relevant as today's weather. It's just constantly responding to the conditions that people create. And there's no hassle in it. The other thing, this is a very interesting idea that um, made great sense to me, which is the Dharma is completely open source. It is public domain. Maybe musicians know that um, there is a time when a song no longer has an owner. There are some songs that have been out in the public for a very long time, and they never had a composer, or the composer's name has been forgotten. And so we sing it for a very long time. And at a certain point, the song kind of morphs. I think there's legal limit, time limit, 100 years or 200 years. When a song becomes public domain. Anybody know? When does a song become public domain? So I heard that books or writings could be a public domain after 100 years. 100 years? So books can be. 100 years? Okay. Connie says 100 years. After that time, 
you can copy it, you can buy it, sell it. hundred years after the death of the author. Okay. And if he doesn't have any descendants who claim it, you know, what royalties. So, thanks, Tom. So, um, works that people write, books or music, can become your, you know, shared freely without having to worry that you owe somebody something for using their, their work. After a hundred years after their death. Okay. Now, if a... However, if, you know, the... What is it? Stephen Foster? Uh, old folks at home. Way down upon the Swanee River. Far, far away. Stephen Foster's many songs. Uh, I think Stephen Foster's... Uh, there, some, some of the best-loved American songwriters' works are still private property. Um, Mark Twain's descendants, I think, still claim. But if you go to, if you want to check it, uh, the Gutenberg Project. People know about the Gutenberg Project. Gutenberg Project is a uh, an invention of the digital age, the computer age. Some very clever people at uh, Carnegie Mellon, maybe, um, went in to the realm of literature and said, does this book have a copyright or is it public domain? And if it was public domain, they found a complete volume, digitized it, and put it on the internet for free. And you could download it. And it was this is public domain. The Gutenberg Project just grew and grew and grew. Shakespeare doesn't belong to anybody, right? Shakespeare is freely available. Homer, the works of Homer, the Greek uh, philosopher and poet and social scientist. Those are free, free of charge, because um, they're public domain. Okay, got the point. The Buddha Dharma is public domain. Do you want to get enlightened? Do you want to wake up? Do you want to do what bodhisattvas do? It's yours. Please take it. There you go. Free of charge. It's yours. Nobody owns the Buddha Dharma. And it took me a while to realize that it always was. The Buddha never sold it. It was never Buddha Circle R, copyright, trademark. The, the Buddha Dharma from the beginning has always been freely available uh, for anybody who wants to put it into practice. And uh, that's lovely. What are some of the other things that are... Um, the theory, of the theory of gravity, okay? Mm. Gravity was Newton, one of the early physicists, right? Newton's uh, ideas about the way the world is put together, free of charge. You can uh, quote it, you can write about it, you can publish it, uh, but because it's public domain, you can't claim it as yours, but you can use it freely. The Buddha Dharma is here to be used freely. Anybody can. And... These insights are not private property. They're completely public. There's no secret here. There's nothing to be sold. There's no hidden... You don't have to get initiated to learn it. You don't have to join anything to learn it. It helps to speak the language. If you know a little bit of Chinese or Sanskrit or Korean or, or uh, Japanese, it helps Vietnamese 
to to crack it. But one of the benefits of having a teacher like ours is he made it important that we put it into English, so that people who don't speak Chinese, Japanese, uh, Korean, Vietnamese uh, can can have access to it. So how wonderful that this wisdom is public domain. It's open source. It's, it goes beyond the language to be really open source. The source is the mind. And if you can wake up, if you can purify your mind, you've got the code. You have all the algorithms. And you can create your own, uh, create your own sutras, your own wisdom. So, okay, that's the idea. Any, any comments about the Buddha's saying that he's dismayed with everything that he thought was solid? He's no longer greedy or attached to it because he knows it doesn't exist the way it used to in his mind. He's seeking the Buddha's wisdom because that's the description that he's looking for. He's got no other thought. It's hard to fathom, hard to think of, incomparable, limitless and boundless, by troubles not oppressed. What do you do when the world breaks up? When everything you thought was true is not true in the same way. And then you realize it always was always was, but you you didn't see it that way. Anybody have the experience that I did of coming home from college and having your bedroom look really small? Yeah, that's funny. And then your mom suddenly looks smaller too. And you think, was it always that way? Or has something changed? What has changed is your way of seeing. Your eyes are different. You have different eyes than you did. And before, your bedroom was like, that's where you lived. And your bedroom was your bedroom. Yeah, there was your posters, and there was your books, and there's your, you know, your secret hidey place for stuff. And that's where, you, where your shoes went. And it was, that was it. There was no big, no small. And then you go away, and you live in a dorm room, and you eat in the cafeteria with everybody, and... And you come back home and suddenly it just looks smaller. It's like, it's my room. Oh, I remember that was, yeah. And you kind of close the door and, you know. So, was it small all along? Or did something change? Well, the answer is something changed. And uh, the Bodhisattva, he's been living in the world all along. But something's changed. He now sees things very differently. And the things that used to be fun and desirable and where it was at, now are just the same. All the, the glitter has gone off, the stuff that used to really appeal. That doesn't mean he doesn't love it at all, or he loves it less. It's just that it's now it's connected. And... The stuff that used to be so good is now only good. The stuff that used to be so terrible is now merely irritating. And everything that used to be like this is now kind of like this. Because why? He has gone to the heart of it, gone through the surface. And he not only has, as they say, the technical term is, he empties out first the self, the thing that's looking at compound, conditioned dharmas. But then he empties out all dharmas too. And it's, it's like that. The first, the first thing that the bodhisattva empties, they say as a verb, is 
the thing that's looking. How do you do that? You sit still. You're sitting. And at some point you realize that the smells coming from the kitchen just go right through. If you don't grab them, they don't stop. And the sights that you used to love and wait for and the things you used to hate, and just they don't stop with your eyeballs. It goes right through. Where was that sight that I used to love and hate? It's like, I didn't move, and so I just went, wow. To be liberated from the need to react to sights. What about sounds? Somebody used to know how to press your button. They used to call you by a name. That was the name that you hated. They called you by that name that just used to get you so upset. And you hear that name go by, and you don't even recognize it as the power sound that hits you. Why? Because it's like, that's not me. I really know that's not me. Further, the Bodhisattva now, when he hears that name called by somebody who's hoping to get your goat, hoping to press your button, you go, oh, like, you must really be upset to not have anything better to do than to try to irritate me. Ah, I hope you feel better. It's like, thanks for paying, the, paying attention to, like, try to get me, but no. If you look back, you'll realize you're a mess. <laughs> like, Check, check it out. Where's your mind? You know that didn't get me. And this power sound that was like your your worst is absolutely going to set you on fire. It's like it's not there. Why? It's just a sound. It used to go like that. Now, no, it's a sound like any other. I don't have to react. And you're free from the need to respond in the old ways. So that's the advantage of this, the bodhisattva being able to quote empty out the self. Then, the next step is the Bodhisattva empties out dharmas. What does that mean? Fa kong, wo kong, fa kong. The Bodhisattva empties out dharmas, which is to say his investigation, her investigation continues. He applies it first by noticing that what? My ears don't have to respond. My eyes don't have to respond. My mind doesn't have to jump the way it used to. Well, who was in there who was so upset when that person called me that name? Who was in there when I saw that face and I had to like, because they can't look at me like, who was that? So you empty out the self bit by bit. You realize that's just habit. That's just habit energy, habitual patterns that you don't have to own. Let them go. Save that precious energy that would chase out after Habitual responses. It's just, it's called conditions, conditioned dharma. Then, right, so you empty out the self that way by asking, you investigate, who, who, who is in there responding? Then you go, you know, the thing that I'm hearing that with is empty too. All things are empty. You just expand that investigation. You realize that there is no self, there's no permanence, there's no satisfaction in any conditioned thing. And that is radical. I mean, that is deep. Because you're deconstructing reality. Right? We talk about postmodern thinking that is deconstruction. How you look at certain social conventions and you look at knowledge 
and you realize that knowledge is very fluid. Knowledge is not a fixed thing. And the Bodhisattva is deconstructing knowledge, but he's deconstructing the world around him as well. So this is radical rebuilding of self and dharmas, the world around you and the thing that perceives them. Now, by itself, that could be totally scary. You could wind up with no, 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 nothing, you know. And there's the sutra talks about the bodhisattva who gets stuck in nothing, and that's halfway home. But the if you follow the description in the sutra, the bodhisattva doesn't stop there. He keeps on the investigation, keeps working, and once you really empty out self and dharmas, what you are left with is the utter, total, complete interconnectedness between all sentient things. You realize that this entire thing is a network of identities, beneficial affinities, harmful and harmless connections. And so the Bodhisattva emphasizes the harmless connections. But what you're left with is great compassion. Once you empty out the self and the limits of me and mine, my skin and my my possessions, what you discover is we're totally connected, inextricably connected. And the Bodhisattva tests that out and looks all around the world. Everywhere he looks, he sees family, friends, and people who he has vowed to cross over. So, at that point, where are we? Page 68, 68, Having seen the Buddha's wisdom, he feels pity for all sentient beings. He sees them as forlorn, without support, and unable to be saved. The three poisons blaze always vexes them as they are stuck in the jail of existence, always suffering. Okay, this translation in English is a fluid thing. We're not, we're working on it. So, here's where he is. He sees the Buddha's wisdom. The Bodhisattva has heard the Dharma and he realizes that this description of reality is deep. It's consistent, it's freely available, it's public source and public domain, open source, and it works. It actually helps to see it that way. And then he looks at everybody he's related to and he goes, man, we, meaning me before I heard the Dharma and everybody else, is running for pleasure and running from pain. Most of our lives are passed in those two two poles, chasing after pleasure, always wanting a little bit different, something a little bit different, a little different tonight, a little different flavor. 
and running from what's right behind us. And we don't look over your shoulder, it might be gaining on you. Right? Pain. It's like running from pain, running for pleasure. So life passes between ah and oh. Right? Ah, oh my God. It's coming right up, coming after me. The Bodhisattva sees that and he knows these folks who are being led by advertising towards what they think is happiness. A slightly different look, a slightly different hairstyle, another dress, different makeup, a different boyfriend, a different job, right? a different house, or trying to get out from under crushing debt, illness, abusive relationships, people who don't care about you, and the sense that life is passing you by and you're stuck. You know, that's what we're running from. And we're running towards the sense of it'll only be better if I can just get there. Out there is where it gets better. Because right here is nowhere. And I gotta move because it's get, it's like no way. Right? And in between, like we pass our days, you know, that's like my life. So the Bodhisattva understands how that is, how we run from pain and run towards pleasure. And everything around us, particularly the marketplace, wants us to think that this is the right one. Get this one, you're happy. Get this one, you're happy. Oh, that one was last year's happy. This is the new happy. Get this one, and you're happy. And Talk about ignorance. Advertising wants us to be asleep. If we wake up, we are un-American. We are rebels in the marketplace. We are consumer revolutionaries. And that can't be, because we won't buy the new one. We won't invest, keep the wheels of industry turning. So it's like... It, it depends, like, advertising is there to fool us. And if you think of it this way, advertising is there to keep us in a constant state of unsatisfaction. The job of advertising is to tell us that we're not there. We're not happy. Because why? As soon as we're happy, we won't reach for the plastic. Reach for that credit card. We don't. Because why we got what we want. I'm happy. I'm content. I got enough. I have enough. I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. If you say that, you are going to mess up the profit, the bottom line. And that's what made our country great, was we, are, we make stuff and we sell it. In this culture, we are merchants. We do a really good job of buying, building new stuff and selling it around the world. So as long as we're doing that, people are making money. And the NPR can report Dow Jones is in, in the black. So that's the job of advertising is to say, no, no, this is not it. You're not there. You need this. Then you're happy. How undharma that is, how ignorant that is. And if you wake up, you are a countercultural revolutionary. 
So he sees the Buddha's wisdom and he pities living beings who are stuck in that world of having to listen to find out what's the new one so I can buy it and be hip. Right? We're always off-center because we've got to find out what's the new one. Fashion. My God, fashion. What's the cycle? If you wait long, when will bell-bottoms be back in style? How, how many years do you have to keep your wardrobe before you're hip again? <laughs> Does it recycle through like every eight years or ten years or something? I don't know. So fashion is, is really fascinating to watch because it you know, comes back. Hemlines go up, hemlines go down. So having seen the Buddha's wisdom, he pities living beings. Forlorn, without support, not being saved. Gudu, alone. Wu'i, nothing to rely on. Ujohu, nothing that saves us. Okay, just that one, Gudu, alone. Um, we, as we have painted ourselves into a corner with relationships in America, in, in the West, not only America, but particularly America, where our value is freedom, we want to be free. Dr. Konza, the famous translator of Prajnaparamita texts, was here for two years, and I was his student. And Konza was a, he, he was a keen observer of American culture, and he loved to lampoon American culture. Of course, he lampooned everything. But Dr. Konza said, Yes, yes, those Americans, yes, he said, they have one motto, one thing they live by, the hallmark of American culture, a single sentence. Let's get out of here. That's it. Let's get out of here. That was Dr. Cohn's analysis of American culture. Let's get out of here. It's like, and there's something to that. It's like, let's get out of here. This is we're on the road. We put everything on wheels. Kids get their wheels when they're two, you know, hot wheels. We, if our dogs are, we put our dogs on wheels. We create little carts. Everything in America, silver skates, silver, silver scooters, silver line scooters, right? Razor scooters, they're called. I was on my way to uh, the um, um, Emeryville, no, the uh, Albany entrance onto the freeway, heading for the Albany freeway entrance, Highway 80. And here was a guy he looked to be about 40, and he was fit, and he had his baseball cap on backwards. And he's, he's a big guy, he's a, you know. And he had his razor scooter under his arm, and he had this look in his eye of, I'm gonna have some fun, you know. And the razor scooter, I mean, it's, they're not hip, right? They're every kid who had them. They were hot like four years ago, and everybody had to have one, and then in nine months, they were no longer hip, and everybody put them in the garage. A rate, you know, there are these silver tiny wheels and like that. This guy had his sporting cap on backwards and he was like, going to go out and have fun in his radio scooter. It was really cute to see because it was like retro, you know. He'd already brought it back around and it was hip again. So it's like, man, we go on wheels. We want wheels with everything. When you get, if you don't believe it, get behind some uh, Yahoo truck driver out on a country road, and pickups have grown. We were just in Oregon, and 
I'm watching, driving along, and watching as we get farther away from the city, the pickups get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, pickups have for six wheels, right? You have to get a six-wheeler tandem wheels on both sides. And the, the uh, fenders go out like this to make those. So the average pickup is just this large vehicle, you know. And you got to climb up a ladder to get into the, the cockpit, you know. And Roger, over on Mayday, here we go. You know, engines, contact. And away you go down the freeway, and you're way up high. Man, we live for our wheels. And if you came from Taiwan, you would not understand anything I'm saying because it's like it's different. Even in Europe, Europe, the cars are this big, you know, the smart car. We, we put it on wheels and away we go. Sixteen wheelers is what we drive. We drive these giant freight liners. Now, I have to tell you, I as a growing up in mid America, I know my sixteen wheeler semi trailers, Mac trucks and I went to Australia and I knew humility Australia has desert cruisers that are ready for the outback where the next gas station is about mm, 500 miles from here and these land trains they're like 16 wheelers times three and these guys are famous for cranking it up to 100 miles an hour and not touching the brakes between now and 500 miles. They just roll. And everybody knows on the Australian freeways, you get out of the way because they are going to squash every kangaroo and wallaby and gold prospector and indigenous you know, family. If you're on the freeway, you get, they don't stop. They can't touch the brakes because to slow this thing down takes a mile. But once this gets going 100 miles an hour, it's like, so Australia has beat the U.S. in terms of putting culture on wheels. Because there's nothing in the outback except sand flies and sheep. And oh my Lord. So these things roll. Anyway, we do that. We roll in this. We put everything on wheels. And that's our culture. And we believe that we are free. Right? That was my kickoff for this idea. Freedom. We are free to roll. That's why, guess what? We are attached to fossil fuel. Gas, we're not going to do without. We're going to take the last drop out. Big problem, famine coming, food shortage. Why? The humans are competing with the corn, with the cars for corn, ethanol. Biggest consumer of corn these days? Humans? Livestock? Nope. Ethanol producers. Why is there suddenly not enough corn to go around? We're using it instead of gas. Right? Instead of fossil fuel, oil, gas. So, another story, another story. But, we want to go when we want to go. We are free. We are on. We are, let's get out of here. Because free, the result of which is what? Freedom, we've applied that to our families and we have atomized our families to where it's like one person with multiple vehicles. It's not one person, one car anymore. It's one person with multiple vehicles. 
And as a result, everybody you know is lonely. Everybody you know is lonely. Find somebody who's got good buds who they spend with, somebody who's got grandma under the roof, somebody who lives with their parents. You have, a, you have found a rare duck in this culture. American relationships have been fragmented to the point where we spend more time with our machines than we do with our blood relatives now. And that's an absolute fact. If it's not that we've atomized, I'm, what am I working on? I'm working on gudu wu yi wu jiu hu, second line, forlorn, meaning lonely. No one to rely upon and no one who can save us. The scariest, <coughs> the scariest feature of our new reality, which has come so fast, is the fact that young people spend most of their waking hours relating to digital readouts, not to human faces, right? We now relate to beings in, what, 64 bits, right? This is how we relate now on a vertical screen, 2D, two dimensions in 64 bits, but we don't notice our mother's and our father's faces because we haven't seen them. Right? You friend friends on Facebook, but you don't talk to people who like have expressions and breathe and touch you or hit you. Right? We have fragmented our, our families and our relationships to the point where it's one child to five screens 23 hours a day. And human beings half an hour a day or an hour a day at the most right and i'm you know i'm exaggerating a little bit for effect but not much you know if you got if you're a young person yourself or if you have we have fragmented our relationships man and it's really hard to go back it can be very hard to go back and the result is we're forlorn it says go do lonely right who do you turn to when the screen won't fix it not your Facebook friends. So we, we painted ourselves in a corner. We're in a funny place right now. And to think that somehow young people are going to go, oh, well, I think I'll talk to my buddies. Like, I'll go find them. And we'll go hang out, you know, and like talk to each other. Not, not so easy anymore. Right? I was astounded when I walked into my classroom at Bond University last uh, February and I was, I was behind the curve. I'd never experienced this before. And so I didn't say to everybody, my first day in class, okay, take that device with an on-off switch and move it to the off position. As they say on the airplanes now, if it's got an on-off switch, move it to the off position, right? I didn't say that. And as a result, most of the class was going like this while I was lecturing. You know, they're going, uh-huh. Yeah. You know? And it's like, I, I, I was slow. And I, I checked with Dharma Master Chur, who teaches, he says, yeah, you didn't tell him? Oh, you're supposed to tell him. It's one of the things you do. Put that damn thing in your pocketbook. You know, put that in your backpack. Don't touch it. Because <laughs> you know? why? You won't get their eyes. The eyeballs go somewhere else. 
And I didn't realize that's the new rule, another rule. It's like, hey, you know, like while I'm talking, do you mind, you know, turn off for now? <laughs> or else, you know, okay, uh, do you use texty? All right, here, here's the assignment. <laughs> Maybe I should do it, you know, first. But okay, you got an apple, apples, okay, we, we got a message here. Mac message, okay. So how strange that now we've moved into this world where relationships are are fundamentally different. So, is that bad? Not necessarily. It's happening. Are there any rules? I don't know. It's too soon. And it happened so fast. You know. And you think, okay, so what do you do? Well, kill the grid. Get off Wi-Fi. You know, is it going to happen? It's cataclysm. If we had like a big tsunami and all that fried all the wires, you couldn't. This would be like, what? It's not even good as a doorstop. It's not heavy enough to be a doorstop, you know. What do you, what's it good for? Not much. Once it goes dark. And then what? Then there will be a generation who will try to find each other again, but won't know how. Because Li, what is Li? Chinese. Li is this genius system of relationships. Li, Li Mao. They're by Confucius's time, right? 2,500 years ago, the Li Ji was already there. The Chinese have been figuring out relationships for so many thousands of years, they even put it into a text, the Li Ji. How you behave in certain situations. How do people do it? Why did they write it down? Because people have been doing it that way forever. As long as there had been people, people needed to figure out how to do stuff, they wrote it down. Confucius didn't write it down. He was passing it on, telling them, yeah, it's all been codified. We all know what to do when, when the emperor comes. We all know how you're supposed to behave to your brothers because this is what works best. And it, it's dependable. And you can stand on it. Because why? People don't change that much. Our basic natures are the same. Our minds are not that different from millennia to millennia. Our nature, how much did the weather change this last, you know, the last up to the 20th century? Not very much. 20th century was probably a whole lot like the third century in terms of weather. Well, we broke that in our lifetime. We broke it. But never mind. It has been the same. Well, People's nature is not that much different. It's been the same all this time. So they wrote it down. The Li Ji is this incredible compendium of how to behave. You know. And in Chinese, if you if you do something embarrassing, surely I've lost the right way to behave. Surely I've offended you. I'm sorry. Oh, oh surely. You know. I didn't do it the way Li ritual usages tells me I should do it. So it's We've lost that, and we're going to have to like reinvent it, find it again. Maybe if humanity survives, there will be a time when the ones who remember will go, you know, um, there used to be this book. Uh, we used to know how to like talk to each other. It was called the Lee something or other, you know. The book of etiquette, the book of ritual, not really. It's the book of the right way to be together. Because why? We're forgetting it. We don't know. We are gudu wu yi wu jiu hu. Right on, you know. And the bodhisattva looks and goes, yeah, man. 
people are so lonely. What do we hang? Hang out in singles bars. Anybody ever hang out in a singles bar and, and meet a single person that you wanted to talk to? Or like out in the light, you know, in the dark with the singles, you know, after like three drinks, it's like people look pretty good, you know. It's like, turn the light on and you go, I'm feeling lonely again. <laughs> Actually, I don't want to know you. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's a sing- how do you, why do we go to singles bars to meet you? Oh man, how lonely. How sad is that? But what do we do? We go to movie theaters and we have a group experience. Movies are actually cool because you can, you can these images, we share it, although we're all looking at the screen, not at each other. You know, we like, okay, tell me the story. So we share that. Um, Woodstock. Anybody know about Woodstock? Some heads are nodding. Okay. You have to be a little bit of gray here before you can nod your head and know about Woodstock. Woodstock happened in 1969. I was in Japan. I was in Taiwan when it happened. Same year we landed on the moon. And uh, half a million? 800,000 people came to a farm in upstate New York, Max Yasger's farm, and had a, had a rock concert. And they shut the New York Thruway. Too many cars, too many people. And the bands had to be helicoptered in because they couldn't drive. And it rained like mad. And people got very wet. And people got hungry. <laughs> and the hog farm, including one of our local luminaries, Wavy Gravy, stood up got to the microphone and said, good morning. You know, it was like seven in the morning and the light, the sun was rising and everybody was covered with mud and filthy. He said, what we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 500,000 people. The food is over here. <laughs> and they, they brought the food in for everybody in Woodstock. And people had never been together with that many people that close relating with each other without standard lee etiquette, usages. And so a new, it was kind of like the dawning of the age of Aquarius, when suddenly these relationships are all new. Woodstock was, I mean, it's good music, but more importantly, it was like a whole, it never been before. This was the, the 60s, the end of the 60s, and we were like experimenting with a whole new way of relating. And if... LED screens and digital readouts had not been invented. Who knows? Maybe Woodstock might have, you know, we might have kept that attempt to live together in harmony. Nobody died. Uh, one person died at Woodstock, but nobody died in violence. Somebody had a heart attack. But there was no murder, no robbery. Everybody shared their filthy sleeping bag, you know, <laughs> and their spoon. You have a spoon? Yeah, I got a spoon. Oh, thanks. And so it's not the case that we don't know about relationships, but we've gone in a very funny place. And as the result is, it's really hard to find a friend. It's really hard to find any connection, anyone to rely on, anyone who can, who has a clue about how to pull ourselves out. 
So the Bodhisattva goes, oh my, tell me what it says. I don't read Chinese. <laughs> I've heard that the Dharma has a clue. I've heard that the Dharma has some glue, glues people together because you see the connection and it's called compassion and it's how it is that we're actually related. We're actually stuck together because why? Bodies are made up of earth, air, fire and water just like you, just like me. We have this nature inside that is moving on, not self and doesn't hit the spot. Those qualities, what are called the sanfa yin, three hallmarks of Dharma and that's true. And actually, if we treat each other with kindness, we get along better. Things get better if we don't eat each other. You know, that's good. Says some people say, I want to know more about the Dharma. Tell me about that. So, three poisons blazing, sandu chiran, greed, anger, and delusion is in us and won't quit. Why do we have to be greedy? Why do we have to be angry? Why do we have to pursue upside down behavior? Ask makers of Mohammed snuff films, you know, Mohammed hate films. Why do they do that? Ah. And what else? Zhu, zhu, yo, yu, heng shou ku. What a line. They stop. They stay in the jail of existences and they're always experiencing pain. There's a line. The Buddha says, yeah. They're, they get stuck in the jail of existence. Where are we? We're in the jail of existence. We're in the jail of the many existences. And what do we do? We stuck there. We stop in these places. We're stuck in existence. Now, is the Bodhisattva not stuck in existence? How do you explain that? The Bodhisattva can choose where he's going to stay, where she's going to stay. She's not stuck there. The Bodhisattva is free to come and go into different bodies. So what is an existence? Well, it certainly has a body. But consciousness can be an existence too where it's, there's a special realm of the heavens where you're only in... Um, are you guys looking for sutras? We got some sutras downstairs. Is that what you're looking for? We got, there are some downstairs. Yeah, They ran out of sutras upstairs? Yeah. We, we went upstairs to the balcony and Brought them all down. I gather people. I take it back. So the Bodhisattva says, "Yeah, being in a body, it's like being in jail. What's it like being in jail? You're not free. Can't go when you want to. If you're sick, you don't believe it. Get sick. Oh, my body is. I'm stuck here. I don't want to be sick, but I, I'm, I feel it, and it's like sick. Got a fever." bad stomach, I ate some bad food. You don't believe your body is a jail? Eat bad food. Food poisoning. Yeah. And then cancer comes. And we go, why me? Boy, when cancer comes, it is just, I mean, it's terrifying. It's like this finger comes and points at you. And you have to go through the stuff. 
that you go through to get rid of cancer if you can. Oh, man. It's talk about seeing the body as a jail. It's like you are not free. Suddenly it points at you. Ah, diabetes, right? High blood pressure, heart attack. Oh. So, three poisons blaze always vexing us. Getting stuck in the jail of existence and always, ever suffering, that's, there we are, there's the Buddhist cliche, right? The Buddhist stereotype. What it means is painful. It hurts a lot to have a body. If you don't believe it, get old. Man, getting old is no fun. No fun getting old. Your body doesn't work the way it used to. You're not free. You can't, it won't do what you want. Um, yeah. So, um, here's a jail. Diet. Diets. You don't believe it? Go to Barnes and Noble and go to the diet section. Oh my God. Book after book after book promising that this is the way to get ready for summer bikini season. Right? Oh, come on. Like, nah, you don't just juggle a couple. Oh, what was the other day? There's a doctor who published an article on uh, some blog saying, sorry, the idea that exercise is going to take pounds off and make you slim doesn't do it, he says. He says, everybody has to exercise just to keep, keep, if you exercise, you keep aging away. Exercise does not change your body type, he says. Okay, so it's like he's aiming at that one. Then, what's the article after him? To lose weight, to look slim, to get ready for a bathing suit season, you need to exercise. And here's what you have to do. You go, uh, 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 you guys fight it out. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to read this. I'm going to go do some sit-ups, some crunches. Oh, my Lord. So, what is it? We're not free. It's like all these ideas about the body. And the body, from the Buddhist point of view, is a result. It's a, it's a history of what we did. Our body is a record of our behavior. It's born of karma. Our body simply shows what we did from our gender to our race to our health to our, our height to our blood type. All of that is a, a record of behavior. It's born of karma, which just means action. The things we do, we, we become what we do, right? And we say we are what we eat. Yeah. More importantly, we are what we think. That's what gives us our body and everything else. So it's cause and effect. No accidents, no mistakes. Which is scary and sounds like a slam until you go, yeah, but you know what? If I can change it. If we step into action with cause and effect, we become the architects of our future. All right. Can we go to the next one? This is more of the same. Here we go. Fan nao chan fu mang wu mu zhi yao xia lie sang fa bao sui shun sheng si bu nie pan wo ying jiu bi 
勤精进。烦恼缠缚忙无目，只要下列三法宝，随顺生死不涅盘，我应就必勤精进。By afflictions bound, obscured, blind, and lacking eyes, their inclinations low and vile, they lose the Dharma jewel. They follow after birth and death, frightened of nirvana. I should, for their rescue, be diligent with vigor. Okay, here's the Bodhisattva. This is the um, the sutra takes us right into the the heart. Of the Bodhisattva. This is when people say this philosophy. Go, excuse me. This is not philosophy. This is heart. This is emotional conviction. The Bodhisattva says, "Wow, living beings are tied up by their miseries. They're blind. They can't see. Their intent is not noble." And they lose the Dharma jewel. They don't even seek a solution to their suffering. They don't believe they can get better. They pursue things that throw them back into reincarnation. Nirvana, on the other hand, terrifies them. They can't imagine getting free. And then the quote: "This is the voice of the Bodhisattva." Wo ying jiu bi, qin jing jin. I should save them. I should work at it really hard. Okay, it's key. This is a key moment in the sutra. The bodhisattva gets the resolve right here. This is where an ordinary person becomes extraordinary. Where somebody says, "I can't stand it that the people I care about are running back into the burning house. I should save them." So on the the bowing pilgrimage that I took with、uh, Marty, people know Marty, Professor Verhoeven. We went to this.、Uh, we went up the coast, and there's these funny little towns. They're called the the Tri Cities, Pismo Beach. The people know Pismo Beach, down in Central California, and、uh, there was a fireman. He was one of the local. Uh, they actually had this firehouse, and he served the Tri Cities. What is the other cities? Pismo Beach. What is it? San Luis and Morro Bay. That those are not the three. There's there's three smaller ones. Those are big cities, but there's there's one called the Three Cities: Pismo Beach, Arroyo Grande, and Grover Beach. Yes, Arroyo Grande. He was in Arroyo. Thank you. Perfect.、Uh, he was a fireman in Arroyo Grande, and I haven't thought of him for so long. I've forgotten his name. So he 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 came out、uh, to. We saw the. First of all, there's a fire truck pulled up, and we thought, "Are we on fire? You know, who's somebody burning something? What's going on?" And it was the fire truck. We had just. Made a rescue, and they were between emergencies. Norman, Norman Hammond, Norman Hammond was his name. And this fireman comes out, and he's like, got his big 
yellow slickers and his big boots and his big gloves and his hat. Very satisfactory looking fireman. You know, he looked like every kid's imagination of what a fireman should look like. And he came up, Tom, Tom, Tom. You know, and we're thinking, do we need to be put out? Why, why is this fireman coming up? And he comes up and he says, hi, fellas. My wife prepared this for you. You eat cookies, right? Here, take that. Thanks. He says, I'll see you later. So we got some, an offering of cookies from the Arroyo Grande Fire Department. And sure enough, at the end of the day, this car pulled up, and it was Norman looking in his, his blue jeans and, and his denim shirt. He said, yeah. He says, I, he said I, when I drove by, he said, I bet those are Buddhists. And he said, when I came out to see you, he says, I'm so glad to see you. He says, yeah. And uh, he said, Marty said, uh, how do you know we're Buddhists? He said, well, you look just like that description from the Lotus Sutra. He says, you know the part about the burning house? He says, yeah. He says, I just love the Lotus Sutra. That's my favorite chapter, the burning house. I wanted to come out and talk to you about it. (laughs) We're going, far out. This is California, man. Even the firemen know the Lotus Sutra. So he said, and he plops down, and it started to rain, and he climbed into our, our, uh, our station wagon with us. And he says, yeah. He says, that's just the way it is. I love the way the Lotus Sutra the Buddha in the Lotus Sutra says, you know, our existence is just like a burning house. And yet we are unaware of the flames. And here we are playing while it's burning down around us. That's just the way it is. He said, I'm a fireman, I know. He said, the strangest thing. He said, you know, we all talk about it at the firehouse. He said, we will pull somebody out and the building is burning down around them, you know. And we... He says, we got this thing called the, uh, he said, it's a circle of life. And it, it, we turn our hose into a horizontal rain. And instead of being a straight, where we can direct it, he says, we, you can turn it like that, and it makes a hole. And you can go through the flames as long as you don't go too far. And you got about 45 seconds. And he said, and we just turn it wide, and we go through the flames and pull somebody out. And he says, and you know, one in ten, turn around and run right back in. And it's usually for a wallet or a kitten or a photo. And if they run back in, rarely do they get back out. He says, every one of us has these stories. You're, you're nodding. You, you know the story. Huh? He says, oh, man. He says, that's the way it is. He said, even in the middle of the flames, we don't wake up. We think. Things are going fine. We get lost in our toys, get lost in our memories, and we don't realize that our lives are at stake. And he says, yeah, the Buddha had it just right. He said, that's the way it really is. And and he says, you know, he says, I'll tell you. He said, from my experience as a fireman here, you know what life is like? He, He gave us this image, this analogy for life that I'll never, ever forget. And you have to kind of eat American breakfasts to get the analogy. He said, you know what life is like? Life is impermanent. It's over in a blink. You know how fast, you know how long life lasts? He said, life lasts no longer than the drops of sweat on the plate where the last piece of toast was. That's how long life lasts. 
Now, you put toast on the plate, you won't get the image if you don't eat toast on a plate. If you have, you, we have toasters, you have a toaster, put the bread in the toaster, right? You wait, ding, up comes the toast. If you put it on a plate and you butter it and you eat it and it takes a while and you get down to the bottom, you take that last piece of toast, there's sweat on the plate, right? Where the moisture was. And however long it takes to dry up, that's life, says Norman. Norman says, how long does life last? It lasts as long as the sweat on the plate after the last piece of toast has been eaten. That's how long life lasts, he said. And it's like, right, you got it, Norman. <laughs> he said, you really understand the Lotus Sutra. Come back and see us. He said, yeah, I'll be there. So as long as we passed through the Tri-Cities, he was there every day with some little encouragement. He brought us out of papers and the news, local newspaper had written a story about us. And uh, in the end, when we, uh, when we were passing out of his district and he couldn't come and see us anymore, he said, uh, you know, he said, I've really seen... Buddhists bow through here has kind of reminded me that the, the Lotus Sutra is not just a book. He said, I kind of, I read it and then I put it down and I think that's just so true. And then I read something else and I kind of forget about it and then I read something else and I forget about that. He says, thanks for reminding me that there are some things worth, worth reading again. There are some things worth remembering, keeping in mind. And that's one of them. He said, I want to come see you guys. He did. He made it to the city of 10,000 Buddhas at one point. Norman Hammond came up to find us. So You never know where your affinities are. In this case, a fireman in Arroyo Grande. So, by afflictions bound, obscured, blind and lacking eyes, their inclinations, not noble, they lose the Dharma jewel. They follow after birth and death, frightened of nirvana. I should diligently rescue them. He says. How about that? So here's a sutra that tells it the way it is. We're lucky to have it. You'll find the dedication of merit on either in the, su the songbook there on your, on your bench or else in the back of the, the, the ceremony page. Now the way we do this, this is interactive. The de dedication of merit is, it's up to you to make it work. And you make a wish, send out that merit, share it with whoever you'd like to share it with. And uh, this week we've uh, lost one of our elders, Wesley Wu, Dr. Wu, who is um, the... Uh, husband of Helen and we've known um, Wesley as long as I've long as I've been a monk Dr. Wu has been 
um, offering medical treatment at his clinic in East L.A., usually for free, but not always. Some people actually paid him, paid his bills, but he didn't care that much. Uh, age 85, he uh, went very quickly, very peacefully, and he was taking new patients on the day he died. Master Hua said, uh, Wesley Wu is a bodhisattva. He, said. he usually said, it's like a bodhisattva. In this case, he said, Dr. Wu is, uh, is here to help people, here to save people. And anytime I needed any kind of medical attention, he'd put things down and take me in and give me good advice. Even the thing I, I didn't want to hear, he would say it. Anyway, he is uh, on to another place, perhaps the Pure Land, but I'm sure um, any merit that people would like to share with Dr. Wu and all healing personnel like him, all people whose careers take them into the healing professions, he should fertilize their fields with abundant merit and virtue. So. But make your wish however you'd like to.
Um, could we? Um, sometimes it's nice to to uh, hear good old songs that we know. Could people turn to page twenty-four? This the the reason why I wanted to, to share this song. People know it is because it's. Um, story of somebody who who not only saw things new and different had that vision but actually acted on it stepping out into the unknown with no guarantee whatsoever that that he would find an answer that he would ever be able to uh, solve the he, the Dharma didn't exist when this person had his awareness. What kind of courage did that take? Prince Siddhartha had a wife. He loved her like he loved life. She was fine and she was fair. And when he said goodbye, he said to her, Yes, show. Look at where life leads Yes, shoulder up I'm gonna try to get free I took a little trip into town I learned that death will cut us down I woke up by the city wall Freedom to die is no freedom at all. Yes, shoulder up. Look at where life leads. Yes, shoulder up. I'm going to try to get free. Like you, I never heard an old man sigh. I never knew that people die. I never heard a sick man moan. Well, I, I learned this body ain't my home. Yes, shoulder. Death is haunting me. Yes, shoulder. Mere love won't set us free. Then I saw another man who walked in robes with bowl in hand. His gaze looked neither left nor right. His brow was clear, his eyes were bright. I asked him what he did all day. He said, I cultivate the way. I watch my mind, I watch my breath. And in the end, it's life and death, yes, show. I couldn't love you more Yes, shoulder That's why I'm walking out that door That's the Bodhisattva resolve, right? Because he wants to save them Says the Bodhisattva I'm going to work with diligence to save them Some will say that I'm a fool 
Some will say that I'm too cruel This is the best thing I can do When I get free I'll come back for you Your shoulder up Look at where life leads Your shoulder up I'm gonna try to get free And he did. What did you come to remind us? Well, I came to say that, you know, we're halfway through the Year of the Dragon, and I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. Anybody need some pointers? How's it going? Any good resolves? Changes? Hmm? Any of you got your wings? Keep your tail groomed, clipped, right? Anybody got that sand under the scales? Afflictions that dragons have? Nobody's saying anything. I don't know. Maybe it's, you're depressing me. No, I don't think so. I think I'm telling the truth. It's like dragon years halfway up and they haven't like same old stuff, same old change, no changes, right? Right? Anybody out there? New changes? I hope so. So uh, don't forget, it's uh, dragon.com. Uh, I'll be happy to give any pointers I can. Good. Uh, and all scales away, everybody. Bye-bye. So, yeah, good. Thank you for your Year of the Dragon advice and reminding us. Okay, um, story. First of all, I want to show you um, some pictures. Just quickly. I think I'll tell the story first before I get to the pictures. Because once I do, then the screen is down. Um, I read something very wonderful, and I want to thank everybody who is sending me um, spiritual animal stories. Thanks. I've been getting wonderful spiritual animal stories. People have amazing stories, personal and ones that they hear of. And some of the amazing things that I never would have known, um, the background of this goes that... Um, in a few weeks, I'll be down in L.A. at the Vegetarian Conference, VegSource.com, Healthy Lifestyle Expo. And I'll tell you more about that in case you want to attend. Some people do go. Um, that my topic this year, uh, speaking as a monk, they invite me back, is to talk about humanity's relationship with animals. And they left it wide open. These are people who are vegan mostly. They're not only vegetarian, they're vegan. They eat harmless, harmless eating. And for me to say, you know, we should do something with animals other than eat them, that's, that's old hat. That's preaching to the choir. They know that. They're PETA people that are sitting out in the seats. So, you know, I can't teach them anything about that. But what I can do is look at the notion that um, when we investigate our relationship with animals, including dragons. Oh, there we go. We need to take ourselves uh, out of the center and stitch ourselves back into the fabric. I think one of the biggest um, diseases, disease, disease, one of the things that makes us most uneasy is 
the knowledge that we uh, completely dominate all other species. You all saw the Matrix, right? In the Matrix, when Morpheus uh, is, is captured by Agent Smith. You all know that part? It's near the end of the film, famous scene in the Matrix, where Agent Smith says, you humans resemble viruses, he says. And we do. Everything we touch, we infect. And we spread everywhere and kill and eat every other species. Find me a second species, other than a virus, that eats beyond its designated food. Right? Like, we're the only omnivores, pretty much. We eat everything. Anything and everything. And we're a virus. We will kill impartially. I think that makes us unhappy. I think that takes us off balance. I think in our heart we know that's wrong because we inflict the suffering. Nobody likes to be eaten. So somehow we know that and it makes us profoundly uneasy. Uh, I used to be a meat eater and I'm not now. And I'm not always nervous, anxious because I, I don't have the killing karma coming to me that I would, that I did when I was scarfing everything. So, my point is that it helps humanity when we step back into the network of all living things and just lower our profile. We don't want to be so anthropocentric, humans in the middle, that we define all other species. Not the case. We are one mammal that outgrew its proper place. And as a result, we destroyed the world. We have wiped out species, entire species, by the millions. We're wiping them out now. And that's not our right place. We shouldn't do that. And the world will end. And we'll be the only ones, talk about lonely and forlorn, no reliance. So, point, you get that. Anyway, I'm going to make that point about not anthropocentric universe where we can find our relationship in the fabric of all creation. Free and easy and not burdened with killing karma. So, send me those stories. One of the most amazing stories that I got was called Take Two Cats at Bedtime. <laughs> take Two Cats at Bedtime. Like Take Two Aspirin at Bedtime, right? It's a story from Lynn McTaggart's website, lynnmctaggart.com. And she says, every now and then I trip across more evidence about extraordinarily holistic grand design of our world. Today, this astonishing little factoid had to do with why cats purr. Why do cats purr? Actually, I think I have some purring cats on my phone. Who would have thought? I've got some purring cats here. Let's see. I didn't plan this. Let me see if I can. Here we go. Uh, where is it? Touch her now. Can I run there? There. Here we go. Right there. Okay. 
magic finger. Right? Okay, purring cat. There we go. I won the prize for the longest purr. So, yeah. Okay, purring cats. Why do cats purr? People think it's because they're, they're experiencing pleasure. Some, but not really. Cats purr after an accident. Most. If you put, take a cat to the vet, they don't like going to the vet, they will purr sometimes when they're being operated on, when they're giving shots. Cats, say, say, uh, where's the statistic? Um, researchers from New York's Animal Medical Center examined a phenomenon called the cat's high-rise syndrome. 132 cats who had fallen at least five and a half stories from high-rise buildings, 90% of them survived. Having fallen five and a half floors, why do they do that? It's not that they don't experience. No, they break their bones. But what to, mostly they're, they're, uh, they're treated for shock, shock and trauma to the chest. Um, the cats had all manner of trauma, contusions, and fractions. Emergency treatment was required for less than one-third of the cats. Another third had simple non-emergency care. And the final third, nothing at all. How can a cat fall from five and a half floors and one, one out of three walks away? Why? 90% of the treated cats survive their gigantic fall. Why? Because they purr their bones back to health. Purring rebuilds bones. The dominant frequency for all the big and small cats besides the cheetah was 25 to 45 hertz. Get that frequency. What is it? The same frequencies that are optimal for bone growth or repair. Cats can take it up to 140 hertz. This is a paper presented at the International Conference on Low Frequency Noise and Vibration in Bristol, UK. A researcher in North Carolina got to the same thing, Cincinnati Zoo, etc. Various per frequencies correspond to vibrational electrical frequencies used in treatment for bone growth, fractures, pain, edema, muscle growth, strain, joint flexibility, dyspnea, and wounds. Studies show that frequencies of 25 and 50 hertz promote bone strength by 20% and stimulate fractions to heal faster. Who knew? Cats purr themselves back to wholeness. I really didn't know this. Other low frequencies help to heal muscles and alleviate acute and chronic pain, heal wounds, repair tendons, make joints more mobile, and even aid and regulate breathing. Okay, cool. Now... This woman goes on to write about practitioners of human, human healers who say when they were depressed or undergoing some trauma 
after death in the family or some emotional break, cats often came up to them, sat in their lap and purred to them. And after the purring, the trauma was passed. Fear went away, the grief subsided, or even in the case of actual injury, the cats would come up and purr to the injury. And this would be better. How about that? Better than Reiki. I shared the story with Sharon, my production editor for What Doctors Don't Tell You, who is a Reiki practitioner and an ardent cat lover. Sharon's cat, Egg, loves heights and has no fear of falling. Twice, she fell off her balcony two stories to the ground, after which she began to limp on both front paws. Sharon gave her Reiki three times. She just curled up and purred away happily, Sharon wrote me, her limping cleared within days. And here, I thought I had healed her limping with my Reiki. The interesting question is, what does this mean for humans when we're in close proximity to cats? Williams claims to know people who say they rid themselves of migraines simply by lying down right next to a purring cat. Sharon says she noticed something else strange, and this is weird. When either of the cats rests in or near my wristwatch for half an hour when watching TV, my watch stops. I wonder if it has to do with an electromagnetic field canceling effect which can interfere with watches. <laughs> That's far out. Okay, so take two cats at bedtime and you'll feel better. My name is Hung Shur and I approve of this message. <laughs> so what do you think about that? That's a strange story. Purring cats heal their bones. Didn't know that. Things you'd never know if you didn't come to sutra lecture, right? <laughs> so, what do you think? It's like, so, please keep those cards and letters rolling in. We're going to talk to Dr. Du about this. We have a doctor in Taipei who is, uh, he communicates with animals. And they talk to him. And he'll tell you stories that will amaze you. So, anyway, that's it. I've got to quickly get the screen down and show you some photographs. Just two, just two quick ones. There's my kookaburro. I just wanted you to look at Dr. Wesley Wu. Here is Three Steps, One Bow setting out from Gold Wheel on uh, May, what, 21st, 1977. And seeing us off, standing there on the porch, Dr. Wesley Wu, right there. There he is. He was our, he and Helen were our number one and two Dharma protectors throughout the entire pilgrimage, including providing us with a ve two vehicles that we saved our lives and providing food for us for an entire year up the coast coordinating the, the offerings of everyone else. And uh, now he hasn't had black hair like this for years, mind you. This was Dr. Wu in his youth. But uh, boy, do I remember how grateful we felt seeing that car pull up somewhere on the coast, of California Highway 1, knowing that we had food that day and we were going to be taken care of because Wesley was on the case. And the other 
photo is right here. This is our teacher, Master Shenhua, awarding Wesley his honorary PhD from Dharmarelm Buddhist University. This is the first, I believe this is the first graduation from DRBU. And uh, Wesley's got his mortarboard. And he, uh, this meant something to him. Because he was a Cal grad and MD from maybe UCSF, I don't remember. Uh, but the, what he cherished was uh, recognition that uh, a Buddhist university would give him a, uh, a degree. And if I'm not mistaken, he's a Catholic. Right? At least a Christian. Yeah. Wesley was not officially a Buddhist. But his behavior was the behavior of a bodhisattva. Offering medical care to whoever walked in his office even to the day that he passed away. So, what an, uh, a life well lived. All right? Okay. That's all I wanted to show you. Those two, worth it. To see somebody like that and is uh, special. <laughs>